0: This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. Uh,
1: just a little bit about organization, since maybe we're new to some of you. We're a private endowed operating foundation, that focuses on the sustainable use of outer space. We do that, we try and get cooperative solutions for space sustainability. We do that by working with government, industry, international organizations, and civil space society to try and find a way in which to ensure that the United States and the world can continue to get the benefits of space for long term. So in a nutshell, if you want to learn more about our organization, always feel free to go to our website, swfound.org. One of the things we try and do is create conversations on issue areas that we think may not necessarily be covered elsewhere, which is why we're so pleased that the Senate Science and Space Subcommittee and the Commerce, Science and T- Transportation Committee, I want to make sure I got the full name correct, was able to help us sponsor this event. So thank you guys. Uh, the issue area we're discussing today is space debris, space situational awareness, and what's going on up on orbit. Uh, we have two very esteemed speakers. I'm really just delighted to have them here. They're extremely knowledgeable. The first is Dr. Darren McKnight, who will be talking about a space debris sort of 101. He's a technical director for Integrity Applications Incorporated in Chantilly, Virginia. And also, he has just published a book called Hitting the Innovation Jackpot, practical essays on innovation, trying to combine technical and policy issues, Um, really a way to kind of bring those two expert areas together. And I'm sure he'd be happy to speak more about that later on. Our other expert is uh, Secure World Foundation's own Brian Whedon. He's our technical advisor. He is a former active duty Air Force officer who used to work at the Joint Space Operations Command in Colorado, monitoring space debris, so I feel who better to speak about that than someone from the source. So what we're going to be doing is we'll start off with Darren, and uh, he'll be doing this presentation. I'd like to add as well, um, maybe the font's a little small because we're a little far back, but these PowerPoints will be on our website probably later on today, so don't feel like yeah, you have to do serious eye strain or anything like that it should be able to be legible on our website later on and absolutely if you have questions happy to get them so please
2: thank you victoria are you going to click the choice? yeah okay, okay. okay great um first off thank you all for coming um first off, i thought it was a real honor for you to be here but then i realized it was lunch and it really had nothing to do with me so uh but but still i'm glad i'm glad you took the time on a beautiful day to come um, when you go, when we go through these charts, I apologize. These charts were made for a group of 13 people at the Hague um, that I went to just a couple months ago. So it's a very private group. This y'all can't see this in the back. So I really want to make sure as you go through these charts, you know you're going to see them later. but I really want you to walk away from is two big things. to you get this is a professor, so you know it's a foot stomper for the test. right? There's two two big things. First off. Natural perturbations in space are just as important as what we do, what man in space does. Okay? A lot of people, it's like global warming, everything due to what we're doing, no, there's a lot of natural perturbations that really drive um, the hazards and the evolution of that happens. So number one is don't forget about natural effects when it comes to space. Number two is to make sure when you leave the room, if you don't know already, the difference between Earth orbit debris hazard and geosynchronous debris hazard. It's distinctly different, okay? So if you walk away from here and go, I know the difference between Leo and Geo, and oh, by the way, it's all my hands fault. There's actually some natural stuff going on out there that's just as important. Two things. Um, next. So first thing before I get into the extra technical detail, i wanted to just talk about the National Research Council little, um, report that was just issued. And this was an examination of NASA's uh, micrometeor orbital debris program and things that they are doing right and things that they maybe should be doing more of. And really, the only thing they weren't doing um, enough of was looking at satellite degradation from space debris. We're all concerned about the cataclysmic, you know, Cosmos 2251 Iridium colliding. Those things happen, they're really bad, but they're probably tens to hundreds of degrading events of small particles hitting satellites and making them not work as well, but not dying. That's the worst possible thing because we don't have a good idea what's going on there. And that's really what's going to affect the um, debris long term. It's not going to be the catastrophic event. It's going to be the resulting degradation of, of the operations of a functioning satellite. That's what's really gonna drive it. So that was one thing we said we need to do a little more work on. If you can get a copy of that, I know it's available. Who is, where is it? Right Richard. Ah, there, yeah, Lewis, um, um, uh, you can get it from the website. NAP.edu, just search orbital debris and uh, it'll pop up. Very good, all right. Um, and, and, and it's probably even a better book than this one, right? It's, it's I don't spellbinding, know it's spellbinding that book. But it actually has a lot of good content, it's a really good report. So let's go into the technical detail here real quickly. So one of the first things is what is space debris? The interesting thing about space debris, a lot of people think about it as rocket body. But in reality, if you look at this, um, satellites deteriorate. Just paint flaking off of satellites can actually pose a significant hazard. For years, I would look at the shuttle windows when the shuttle would land and go, oh, we've got a crater here. We have to replace this window. Um, $50,000 for a window from a 100 micron size piece of paint dropping off maybe an old Soviet, Russian, French, American rocket body. Okay, we replaced many, many, many shuttle windows because of 10 micron size paint plates. All the way, actually, please all the way to all the fragmentation events that have occurred. So obviously there have been almost 200 events where a satellite has blown up. Left debris strewn all over multiple altitudes. Okay, and the last thing, next, is this actual big intact objects. Okay, so one of the things that you always see is this thing of, there are 600,000 one centimeter objects in Earth orbit, you well, know, estimated by NASA. Well, that's, that's really bad, but there's like 800 of these huge rocket bodies that are this massive. A sources for future debris, so we're always trying to battle between the numbers versus the mass. So what I'll tell you, is hazard short term comes from the numbers. Hazard long term comes from the mass, because eventually those rocky bodies are going to collide with each other, making thousands and thousands of objects. So it's an interesting. Again, anybody who tells you an absolute about debris, they don't know what they're talking about, because there's no absolutes about debris. Okay, it's always this trade-off. There's always this quandary. Next. So then the question is, how do we see space debris? Is there a point or anything? I was just, did we bring that pointer? Is that? No. no. that's the recorder. Um, return samples give us understanding, like the space shuttle windows. Um, LDEF, long duration exposure facility, if you're familiar with that. Um, spacecraft that was up there for a long time, and we brought it down we measure all the impact. It was great. That's for the very small stuff. For the big stuff... And I think Brian's going to talk about this a lot more later, is we actually measure with optical and radars from the ground. Unfortunately,. Next, unfortunately, what you cannot see can hurt you. Okay? Right in here, we're talking between like five millimeters up to around five to 10 centimeters those objects, when they hit you in Earth orbit, can either degrade your operation or destroy your satellite completely, and we don't have a very good understanding of that at all. Okay. This is what we can see, this is what we can tell what's going on from, from return samples. And here, we have a lot of uncertainty. So unfortunately, again, when I went to The Hague, I told people, I said, you know, I have a PhD in aerospace engineering, so you want me to give you a lot of answers. I don't have a lot of answers. There's still a lot of uncertainty. You know, one of the most important things to understand is, we've had one catastrophic event, one catastrophic collision between two, two payloads, and people are predicting how many we're going to have over the next hundred years. It only happened once. How in the world do you have statistics on how many times it's going to happen when it's happened one time? Right? So that's really important. People get their head around that. We're just at the beginning of understanding how these events are going to evolve. Um, And we do know there have been four collisions in space to date between cataloged objects, 10 centimeters and above. Okay? If we go to the next chart, we'll talk about how the impact of some of those um, have actually affected spacecraft. This... Can we do the next chart? Yeah, go on. So this is the chart that shows spatial density. If you can read these numbers, it's amazing because I can barely read them here. This just basically shows you where the debris is by number in low Earth orbit. Okay, so this shows you that around 700 kilometers here starts to really get high and then drops off around 1,000 kilometers. A lot of stuff going on around here because of breakups and stuff that occurs. Let's look at those events. first. So in 1991, there was a dead payload and a piece of operational debris that hit each other. It took us years to even know this occurred. Okay? Talking about Brian space situation awareness, sometimes we don't really know about things until long after they've occurred. Not a lot of debris. Next. In 1996, major event a piece of Ariane rocket body debris from an old Ariane rocket body that blew up. You know, interesting, almost. Funny, it hit the French satellite. Okay, um, the French didn't think it was very funny, but I thought it was kind of funny. Um, it hit the French satellite. What it did, it it broke off the gravity gradient boom. It's a satellite with a long boom to keep the, the satellite oriented properly. It just severed the boom, and the Cerise kind of limped along for years. Still worked. Okay, um, but but it was really severely degraded in its operation. So I occurred in 1996 next. In 2005, we had an old DMSP and piece of debris hit each other. Very minor, three pieces created next. 2007, a purposeful event, um, where the Chinese did they sat, they had a major spike. This is where the spatial density was before the event. This is where it was after the event. A major significant impact on the environment from one purposeful event. I'm not going to harp about that. I know this is Washington, D.C. and we like politics, but I'm not. It's obvious. Dumb. Next. Um, then we have the uranium, 2009. This is really the bellwether for problems, right? Little things nudging each other. You know, somebody doing an ASAP test is stupid. Don't do that again. But when you have two payloads colliding with each other, you know, an accidental collision, that starts to be the effect that we're really concerned about um, long term. So you can see, again, this is where the spatial density was before. This is where it was after. The next truck, please. So, as I mentioned before, we don't want to worry just about numbers. That last chart was numbers. We want to look at mass. So, this is again a chart that will be much more interesting to be leaping through during the football game on Sunday. Not right now, you can't read it, but this is great football kind of reading for halftime. <laughs> um, 850 rocket bodies, over a million kilograms. If those things were to break up for every thousand kilogram object you're talking about potentially 20,000 lethal fragments you start doing the calculations those things start bumping into each other that's not good okay so one of the big issues is removing those big pieces before they become tens of thousands of small lethal fragments so again we could read this all day long i'm not going to do it there's a ton of information on here but what i really want you to do is is a homework assignment because I'm used to doing that, being a physics professor. Take a look and find something on here you didn't know. I mean, there's, a, there's so much information when you break down non functional payloads. There's 1,400 non functional payloads, 850 rocket bodies in low Earth orbit. Geo, uh, we only have that much debris in geo. Oh, good. Why do you think there's no debris in geo? Lewis?
1: What's that? Don't you want to ask someone here? <laughs> Joel! Well done. Exactly right. We don't know.
2: Transition to Brian in a moment. Sometimes Mm -hmm. these numbers lie. (laughs) Yes, as I love to say, if we get an average, the mean, the mean is never right. I know, I know. Politicians want to get the average. The average is never right. It's high at the time, it's low at the time. Okay, when it comes to space debris, it really throws you off if you're not careful. So next chart. Um, Now let's move to geosynchronous (laughs) In low Earth orbit, everything's kind of swirling, whirling, <clears throat> kind of cultured by altitude. In geosynchronous orbit, there's some weird things going on. There, the Earth is not a nice spherical blob. It's got little lumps and dents and stuff in it. As a result, debris actually pools up at a couple places along the geo belt. Okay, What I mean, pool up is that at uh, 75 degrees east and uh, 105 degrees west, if you stay there, you don't have to do any east-west station keeping. The earth is shaped such that you stay there. Okay? Think about it for a second. Unfortunately, it also means if you're sitting there, any debris that's released goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. That may not be good. Let's look at the effect of that. Perturbation. Oh, sorry, before I do that. No, 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 go for it. Um, of the trapped objects, there's 160 objects that are trapped in geo-orbit. Out of about 1,000 objects that we currently track. Ah, it's no big deal, right? 160. That 15 to 20% of the objects poses about 80% of the hazard in geosynchronous orbit. Okay? That's not good. Right? So again, if we're going to remove objects, those 160 are a lot more relevant than maybe other ones out there because these guys go back and forth and back and forth and pose a greater hazard. Can I prove that? Let's go to the next chart and see if I can. Yes. All right. So this actually shows the probability of collision the other chart showed you a special density they're roughly the same because we use the same information so what I'm telling you is if I'm at 74 degrees east eventually space insurance may cost more money for me than if I'm over here at 150 degrees east matter of fact I work with Swiss Re a space reinsurance firm to actually help them look at looking at different ways in which they're going to apply space insurance in the future (coughs) Space and uh, car insurance is not the same for Chantilly where I live and if you're living around here, is it? It's not going to be the same in space either as people start to understand. So what we see is that there's actually a clumping by longitude. It gets worse. Next chart. Not only is there a clumping by longitude, there's also this weird time synchronization that goes on. When something is released in geosynchronous orbit, there are perturbations that cause them to get like this cosmic condo law. Okay, so that's the I can describe it. They actually all get together, They get in line. Okay, if you can see this thing, it's like the Chinese do you the dragon. Okay? What actually happens is, not only do I know that the longitude, 74, 75 degrees east, 105 degrees west, is higher on average, but during the course of the day, depending on the time of the year, I also know that the objects are gonna, gonna cross the belt at a certain time. So um the actual hazard is going to be maybe 10,000 times greater at one time of the day than another time of the day. You don't hear about this, right? You go to the next chart. What we often see is this typical thing you see for Leo, right? Here's the spatial density as a function of altitude. okay, I know everything now. No. Altitude is one number. It changes by longitude. Oh good, now I'm done. No. Now, I've launched it in time of day for time of year. Dang it. I
1: thought I had it.
2: Okay, so the point, if we go back and we look at anomalies, we look at satellites failing, we have a much better understanding now forensically to say, you said that satellite failed. I don't know if that was a single event upset from a solar flare or debris impact. Ah, now I have some modeling information that can help me understand that better. I have better ways to think of protecting and making my satellites more survivable at certain time of day, I'm going to get 99% of my hazard during this time of day for this time of year, given this longitude. Simple, not easy, right? Simple concept, but it's not easy to implement. Next. So in geo, there's all, this, there's all this squishing and moving and jockeying of objects because the, the Earth isn't shaped perfectly spherical. In low Earth orbit, you get a different natural perturbation. You get atmospheric atmosphere drag. Atmospheric drag, good, right? That's what I tell you before. Don't run your head, Brian. It can't all be good, right? Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Atmospheric drag, what it may do is take an object from a certain altitude, move it down, and then when you get, when solar activity kind of diminishes, because it goes in 11-year cycles. I'm covering a lot of stuff here real quickly, aren't I? Goes in 11-year cycles. What happens is it may just come down and then stay at another different altitude. So solar activity may make 800 kilometers cleaner for a while but it's all moved down to 700 kilometers and hangs around to the next solar peak. Eventually, if it gets down low enough for a certain type of object, atmosphere drag will bring it in. Have you all been following these very high profile re-entries lately? Oh, the sky is falling, right? It's so horrible. Look at this trend. What the trend is we're in a solar max right now. Okay? In a solar max, we have about nine times as many objects re-enter on, on a daily basis during a solar max than a solar min. Okay? So you wouldn't expect there to be more. On average, about one large object re-enters from space each day. During a solar max, it's about three a day. During a solar min, it's like one every three days. Okay, Three times three is... Thank you. I'm sorry. I gotta have that. All right. So what's interesting about this too is we know these things are happening. We've had it. We had over 7,000 payloads and rocket bodies re-enter today. Okay. Has anybody been hit yet? No. It was a story that a dog in Egypt got hit on. Um, but but nobody's been injured yet by a piece of man-made space debris. As a matter of fact, there has been somebody hit by a meteorite that re-entered which is another interesting discussion, which remembers our discussions on our panel, there's still a lot of hazards from the natural meteorite, natural debris environment. As a matter of fact, there are more proven satellite failures from meteorite impacts than space debris, artificial space debris impacts. What? Darn it, I know they're now, You thought this was the big thing in the future, but we, I just, we don't know what we know um, of. When we get hit by a piece of artificial space debris, whereas we actually have the meteor storms pretty well uh, mapped out when they occur. So we might have better correlation for the natural than we do for the man made. Next chart. So, what's the future? This just shows you a plot of the things that are in the catalog, and Brian will explain what that means in a moment. As a function of time, we were doing, you know, the average rate forward. We we're starting to get things under control here. A lot of good debris mitigation, bring down rocket bodies, passivate rocket bodies. Um, doing lots of good stuff, and then boom, right? Two things were way up here. They said years of restraint, rooted in an instant. The question is, was this an average rate? This is a blip, or is this a new future? Don't know. Actually. So, in summary, debris, many sources. Geo is clumped in time and in space, whereas Leo is mostly spiked by altitude. Okay, so it's different environment. Um, re-entry, man, made objects thus far has been statistically unimportant doesn't mean that we don't need to continue to be vigilant try and make sure those things re-enter in oceans, right, eventually somebody's going to get hit if we're not careful um, but so far it has not been a big deal and we have fewer objects up there than have already re-entered which people never say that either Oh, all the, look at all these things, we've had more re-entered than we have up there right now, so if everything re-entered we had, we had right now, it would be less than was already re-entered and nobody's been hit Doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but just to put it in perspective. Uh, Most hazardous regions are the most popular regions. Shock, right? Uh, (laughs) Sun-synchronous orbit and low-earth orbit and the geosynchronous orbit. Natural perturbations, obviously very important. That weird little kabuki dance going on at geo has nothing to do with man. It has to do with solar-lunar perturbations, the gravitational effects of the sun and the moon, and the shape of the earth. It has nothing to do with man. Current hazard and future growth are highly uncertain. Few events and many variables. So it's really hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. Uh, I was asked at a StratCon meeting a while back, international panel, when will the next catastrophic collision event take place? And a guy from me is say, oh, it'll be three to five years from now. A guy from NASA NASA's, oh, you know, Nick Johnson, brilliant, right? You know, five to eight years. Like I said, with hundred percent, and then it my turn. Hundred percent confidence I can tell you is either gonna occur before I finish talking or after I retire. Now, what the other people didn't tell you is the confidence they have on those numbers. Okay, four to five, eight years, um, hey, um, probably ten percent confidence on those numbers. Because there's been one event. It's hard to predict future events when have only had one event. Um, so again, I think what you, you, is important to understand is there are many experts out there, uh, folks at NASA are awesome, but we all are constrained by the same thing and it's actually very early um, in this evolution process. So we're all trying to listen, learn, and, and, uh, and improve our ability to tell people policy issues that, that can improve the um, environment in the future. But we know less than we actually know. That's the truth. So I'm gonna transition over to Brian. I think we'll have questions and answers until we're together at the end, right? Okay, excellent. Thank,
1: Thank you. you.
0: Thanks, Darren. Um, so part two addresses the question of, so how do we know all that stuff that he just talked about? And that's through something called space situational learns. Used to be known uh, in the military times as space surveillance. Uh, In the modern era, it's been rebranded and remarketed, and it's now known as SSA. Broadly put, it's characterizing the space environment. What's up there in terms of satellites, natural debris, as well as things like space weather, and what impact does that have on activities in space? Uh, And there's several subcategories. One is the location of all these various objects that Darren talked about. And to be able to predict where they're going to be in the future. Space weather, which is the measurement of the solar activity and how it impacts, well, things and objects as well as the atmosphere. Uh, the health of satellites, planned maneuvers they have. Uh, and then intelligence, information about, you know, images, signals, capabilities, behavior for objects on orbit. Those first two are, you can kind of think of them as civil safety aspects of SSA, and that last one is a military aspect of SSA. You know, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna try and prevent collisions, you kind of need to know these top two things. Um, For military national security applications, you need to add in that bottom. one. SSA started during the Cold War, and it was an outgrowth of protecting both the U.S. and Soviet Union nuclear attacks. They built these giant radars sitting on the periphery of North America that were looking for incoming missiles and nuclear warheads. And oh, by the way, they're also really good for tracking stuff in low-Earth orbit. Because 99.9999% of the time, you don't have missiles and rockets and bombs flying through the air. <laughs> SSA was also used for for the space warning, but also for intelligence, and a little bit for treaty verification. Today's world is vastly different. There are now 10 countries that can launch objects into space, with Iran being the newest. There's over 70 different entities that operate satellites, everything from countries to international corporations and conglomerates. As Darren mentioned, there's a lot of space debris up there. 21,000 plus, bigger than 10 centimeters. um, And only about 1,000 of those are active satellites. And those are another half million or so, smaller than 10 centimeters, we don't currently track. Because of the capabilities. And to use the phrase from the Pentagon, space is congested, contested, and competitive. So, but although the space regime itself is different, SSA, for the most part, is not kept up. It's still primarily done by the military for national security purposes. Uh, and that comes with a whole lot of bureaucracy and some impediments to modernizing and making upgrades. Now, it, A lot of this relies on computer hardware and software, and that's innovating at a much faster rate then the military bureaucracy can generally plan new acquisitions programs and new upgrades. And that's created some problems. But it's important that we think about how to improve SSA. Because as Darren pointed out, certain actions in space can have negative consequences over the long term for everyone. And everybody that is launching, all those 60 countries and other companies that are launching stuff into space and operating satellites, need to have enough information to be able to operate their satellites in a safe and efficient manner and unfortunately most of them do not have access to the information to do that good ssa requires a geographically distributed network of radars and telescopes if you just have a radar telescope let's say in new mexico then it can only see satellites as they fly over new mexico which will be for one or two minutes every maybe couple of days and it only gives you the ability to predict where its path over the earth over to Mexico now if you have something else in let's say germany and something else in japan and you were taking observations on it from all three of those sites and linking it together you now start to be able to predict where it's going to be in the future that data on the pieces of space debris also needs to combine with data from satellite operators. If I'm I'm intel sat and I'm flying a geostationary comm satellite, I know that I'm gonna be planning maneuvers at a certain period in the future. And so your predictions based on your tracking of where my satellite's gonna be, is gonna be disrupted by those planned maneuvers. Theoretically, you can build this sensor network to do all this by yourself. But it's extraordinarily expensive, you need friends in the right places, basing agreements, and a lot of logistical tails. And few countries have the resources to do this. At the moment, not, I mean, the United States has come the closest, but even in that case, we've run up against problems. But there are many countries, as we'll see later, that have at least some capabilities. And the question is, you know, can we do some collaboration with partners and allies? So current capabilities. Uh, This is the the US network that's currently run by US Stratcom. It's coordinated by, at the JSPOC out at Vandenberg Air Force Base. And most of these sensors are day-to-day operations uh, and maintenance is done by the US Air Force. Um, It's the only network that is global in nature, but it does have some significant drawbacks. There's nothing in the Southern Hemisphere which means when the the satellites fly across the equator, they generally can't be tracked in that part of the world. Um, So for example, one of the most recent that came in was the Russian phobos grunt spacecraft, and it came in here. It was fairly hard to tell exactly where it came in because we don't have any sensors in that part of the world, or at least the United States does. Uh, And these are a combination of tracking radars, uh, radars that can do imaging, Uh, as well as optical telescopes. And all those had different positives and negatives. Uh, The US has a very good catalog of objects in low Earth orbit, and a pretty good catalog of objects in deep space. Russia, um, like the American network, it's mainly built off of the radars that they have for missile warning. So all these radars that are on the outskirts of what used to be the Soviet Union that were used to track, look for American missiles, are now being used for tracking space objects. And the coverage is limited to just Russia and Asia. They have a very good catalog of near low-Earth Arctic object objects. Um, they don't really have a very good deep space catalog because their only telescopes uh, for deep space are at this one place in Kazakhstan called Okno, uh, and a couple others, but they're mainly just over Russia. So if there's a satellite that is in the geostationary belt over America, Russia's can't track. Europe as of yet does not have an integrated network, but there are several countries in Europe that have one or two sensors that they use. Uh, Primary ones are the German Afghan Tira radar and the French Graves or Graz radar. Uh, There's a couple of telescopes in there. These are good individual sensors but there's no, as of yet, no real coordination, and, and the coverage is only over Europe. And they don't maintain a catalog. There's another network called ISON, the International Scientific Optical Network. Uh, as you can see, it's pretty well distributed. Uh, it's made up of a, a astronomy and scientific observatories that in their spare time track objects in space, and track space degree but their primary use is generally research or astronomy. Uh, The whole network is run by the Russian Academy of Sciences. Um, They're all optical telescopes, so they don't really have any coverage in low Earth orbit, but they have excellent deep space coverage. Uh, In fact, there's a few hundred objects that they're tracking that the American military network is not tracking because they have better coverage or they have better instruments. China has several optical telescopes that we know about. Um, there's likely a few, or maybe a little bit more, uh, phased array radars, but all the radars are run by the PLA, and they're not very forthcoming with data locations capabilities. So there's things you can find at Google Earth um, that says, look, that looks a lot like a radar, but whether or not it's actually being used to track space objects, we're not quite certain. Yet. <coughs> Uh, we also know that they have two tracking ships, uh, essentially it's like a big frigate with big radar dishes on it, that they deploy generally for helping track and communicate with their human spaceflight program. A rather interesting uh, new development is something called the Space Data Association. This is a nonprofit based in Alaman, and it consists of several satellite operators. Who have gotten together, created this nonprofit to share data between them and provide them some services. It was founded by SES, Inmarsat, Utilsat, and Inmarsat. As of a few months ago, uh, the total participants uh, were operating 340 satellites, and and, a significant fraction of those in the DSJS Mary Belt. For these participants, The SDA uh, basically takes their data on where their satellites are and it combines it with some other sources of data and it does collision warning for them. It helps them plan maneuvers to avoid collisions and it also helps them geolocate radio frequency interference. And for the last couple of years, the SDA has been in talk with Stratcom and other providers on getting access to uh, data on space debris. There are also private citizens in their backyards that are using everything from binoculars to custom-built telescopes with video cameras and infrared cameras and all the kinds of interesting stuff now we've done. And they generally do a pretty, big, pretty good job. There's some informal coordination over uh, internet mailing lists and email. Uh, and interestingly, they tend to focus on tracking national security and military satellites because A, they're interesting, and B, you can't find that data anywhere else. Um, On the left, we have the X-ray 7B, which has been the news for the last year and a half or so. If you click on the movie on the right. Um, On the right, uh, this is a movie taken by an amateur observer in France using some custom gear that he's put together uh, that actually is not just the object was here, but it's actually imagery of the XR7 being flying by, and it's not too bad for a guy who does this in his spare time as a hobbyist. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <Yep. laughs>
0: so with all that in mind, I just wanted to finish up by talking about a few of the current things that are going on both in the U.S. and internationally that relate to space debris and SSF. Um, the first is the discussion about what is the future of SSA. As I said, historically it's been done by the military <coughs> for military purposes, but there's a growing awareness that you know we need to do some more data sharing to prevent things like collisions, and provide more data to commercial actors as well as international uh, other countries. Um, so this incorporates both improving our own capabilities, but also looking for ways to share data uh, and cooperate with others. Um, And so you can think about it as there is military SSA, which does everything. It tracks objects, it does intelligence, it does characterization, limitations, intent, and a subset of that is SSA to support safety activities. You can think of this as information that you probably don't want to share. And this subset though is information that is generally necessary to share to improve safety of operations for everybody. And there's probably some subset of both groups that it does make sense to share. Uh, you know, the US military is already discussing with France and Canada and Australia and Germany and a couple others about doing some sharing of military SSA data. And there's other discussions going on about sharing of civil data. Within the U.S., the U.S. military is planning a number of upgrades to its SSA system. Um, There's something called the S-band radar fence, which they're trying to bring online to track those objects between one and 10 centimeters that, as Darren mentioned, we currently can't track, yet they pose a significant threat to satellites. Uh, The first satellite in the space-based surveillance system, which is essentially a telescope in orbit, Uh, and so it's not affected by clouds or weather. The first satellite, that's on orbit, and there's plans to launch more. Um, And then at the Joint Space Operations Center in Vandenberg is the system that brings together the data from all the different sensors and produces a catalog and does all the analysis. That system is a decade or more old. Uh, and it's well behind the times in terms of software, hardware, processing power, algorithms, all that fun stuff. So there's an effort underway called the JSPOC mission system, or JMS, to upgrade all that which has been ongoing for a few years now. US Stratcom has a program called SSA Sharing where they're providing collision, uh, sorry, close approach warnings to every satellite operator in the world. And yes, that includes Russia and China. Uh, In 2010, this was several hundred warnings over the course of the year. (coughs) And based on those warnings, there were about 126 maneuvers done to avoid potential collisions. And as I mentioned, the U.S. is signing MOUs with key partners for potential data sharing. Uh, And there's talk of, in the future, moving towards a combined space operations center that integrates allies and commercial partners uh, into the same sort of Operations Center. Internationally, the United Nations Committee on the Peace and of Outer Space, uh, last year created a new agenda item on the long-term sustainability of space. And the goal is to bring together experts to discuss best practices for improving space sustainability. They've created four expert working groups. One of those is dealing with space debris, SSA sharing, and safe space operations. Most recently, uh, there's been discussions about an international code of conduct for space activities. This started back in October 2010. The Europeans uh, produced a draft that was put together by the European Union. Uh, There was a discussion over the last couple of years about what to do about it. And just in the last couple of weeks, Secretary Clinton has announced uh, that the U.S. will be working with the Europeans and the Chinese and the Russians and the Brazilians and the Indians and many other countries in taking this start and turning it into an international code of conduct. Uh, and, And the point is to simply define what is responsible behavior in space and what is irresponsible behavior in space. That's kind of the 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 overall thing Uh, and so with that um, that's all I had and bring Darren up and we'll be happy to answer questions
1: thank you questions from the audience be
0: you know, how It's a good question. Um, there have been many people that have thought about, can you do SSA as a business plan and make money? And so far the answer has been no. Primarily because the capital costs are so massive uh, and, and there isn't really... There is value, but it's hard to, sh- hard to put an exact value on the data and being able to do this. So unfortunately for right now, it's the domain of governments and militaries and space agencies. Um, perhaps the only area where they could help is, is in new technologies. Uh, and um, I mean maybe Darren can add more to that. But there, there are, we do have some limitations in terms of what we can do. Um,
2: it, actually it's an interest, interesting question Boeing is coming up with a capability focused on a very specific need and when something gets put launched in a orbit you, you talk to the International Telecommunic- Telecommunications Unit, um, Union ITU you get a slot and then you magically keep it in that slot but there's really no compliance there's nobody watching very interesting so Boeing said wait a second somebody should be paying attention observing what objects are in which slots if you move the satellite out you're supposed to report I don't you need that slot anymore and you can give it to somebody else but people don't want to do that right so Boeing went at very specific uh, need and they're trying to see if they can generate a business behind that that's very small niche but I think those are the kind of things that then they'll they make grow into more so so there are some people but as Brian said is it's hard to make money on it. It's kind of like the satellite servicing thing people have been talking about. Yeah, it's really going to work. on. No, no, there's no business model. And so I, I'm sure that Boeing will fail. I should say it carefully. <laughs> They're going to make money right away, but the next iteration, they'll refine it. There'll be another need, and it'll happen. But I would
1: assume that there's money to be made in maintenance and for that. Kind of thing, for sure, absolutely,
0: okay. yeah. And there's plenty of, uh, you know, government contracts out there do exactly that. Absolutely, Other yeah. questions? Um, sorry. If, uh, if, if, if we stop contributing to the problem right now that launches, I mean, that's not going to happen. If we just simply stop contributing to the problem right now, how long would it take <laughs> for at least the LEO material that's up there right now to decay to the point where it was either all re-entered or half of it was re-entered? I'm just trying to get a sense of the time scale of which
1: how,
2: how the orbit's naturally decay Sure. The, 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 the lethal ones, the one centimeter, five millimeters or one centimeter things in low earth But it, it takes several decades if you put no more up there, probably 50, 60 years to clear out. The problem is the things that are trackable and then the big intact objects, they're there for centuries. And so they're there for centuries doing this. Might hit you this time? No. Am I hit you next time? Yeah, maybe next time. Right? And then they'll hit. So the problem is we could, the small stuff could come out naturally and sort of over decades
0: But the big stuff
2: would create more and you need to do something active probably you need to do something active about that
0: to directly answer your question at the altitude of the space station which is let's say 400 kilometers the average lifespan is let's say several weeks to a couple of months a few months, that time range up at 800 kilometers the lifespan is decades or longer And so it's not a linear,